Got it? Anything? Anything? All right. Well, I'm just going to, I'll describe it to you if we can get it or not. So what I wanted to show you uh, tonight was uh, a picture of my daughter, Ella, when she was one years old. She's uh, 10 now, uh, but back when she was one, uh, she had this little Little Tykes car, you know, that red and yellow one that like every kid has, and, and she was doing like this. There it is. All right, sweet. Now I don't have to describe it. Now you can just observe it. There it is right there. Uh, that's Ella, one year old, doing one of her favorite things, which is stuffing a crap ton of animals into stuff. Uh, that was not just when she was one, but like even today, I'll go into her room and she will have somehow um, talked her siblings into helping her just load her bed up with every animal they have, which is somewhere in the area of like 3,000 stuffed animals in our house. And she will load it up. But it started back then with this car right here and with uh, those animals. Uh, she, she got this thing where she would, she would wheel the car up and she would sit in it. She would kind of gather all the animals to the side. And actually she would stuff as many as she could in. And then she would get in and she would start reaching down and putting all the other animals in with her and trying to get a bunch in there. Well, there's this one time when uh, Ryan and Rachel Vincent were over at our house. Uh, coming to uh, just hang out a little bit and Ryan saw Ella starting to do this and so he kind of went over there and hunched down next to her kind of watching her and talking to her. Ella wouldn't really talk to you while she was doing this. She was in like business mode um, but he's kind of so he gets down to talk. She's not talking so he just starts helping her. He just starts handing her animals and so she just starts grabbing them out of his hand putting them in the car. Grabbing them out of the hand putting them behind her in the car. Well, then Ryan starts to do this thing where with one hand he hands her an animal, but with the other hand he reaches around and grabs one of the animals out and then brings it back around and hands that same animal to her. So it's basically Ella just loading the same two animals for about five minutes into a car that is never getting fuller. It's never filling up all the way. And I don't know how long they did it, uh, but she probably could have gone all night because Ryan would, was willing to do that. If you know Ryan Vincent, he's willing to just go all night. Um, but eventually, eventually they stopped. I, I, I showed this to you because I think um, that that image right there, that picture is is what a lot of people, I think, feel when they start to do theology. When they jump into things like the study of God, it feels like this impossible, uh, unfinishable task that I'm just going to keep going and, and never get any of this stuff through. Like, if, if God is a, an ocean standing out in front of you, and, and He is this vast and gigantic and deep thing, um, it feels, I think, to a lot of people, like, like theology, trying to study God and understand the Bible and do all those things, is like standing in front of an ocean with a bucket, and my job is to get this ocean moved from this spot over here to back here one bucket at a time. And, and so I, I keep walking up and I, I get it and I walk over and dump the bucket back and I do that several times. I look over and, and it feels like there's nothing in there hardly. And, and I look out at this ocean. I'm not even making a dent. I think there are a lot of people who go, man, I've, I've gone to church my whole life. I've, I've tried to learn about God since I was a kid, but it doesn't seem like it sticks. I look back at my ditch and it feels like there's nothing there, and it just makes me feel dumb to even try this stuff. And, and he's God. Who can really get their minds around all of this stuff anyway? So, so why even bother? And I think 
uh, that, that especially begins to ring true when we start to talk about this specific attribute tonight, the idea that God is incomprehensible. Um, that He is more than we can see or more than we can get our minds around. Remember last week, Scott talked about uh, the arch. The idea being that everything under the arch is created and within space and time, uh, and then everything above the arch is uncreated. So basically, that just means the triune God up here. Um, and that's, that's even kind of an important designation. Above the arch is not heaven. Heaven sits below the arch. Heaven and everything else sits below the arch, unless it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit up here above the arch. And because what is up here is incommunicable, he said, things that do not relate to us, this is so beyond our realm above the arch that, um, that it is something we cannot get our minds around. The concepts up here, the, the bigness up here, it is a whole other category, and, and we cannot get our brains all the way around those things. We're saying, and I think Scott hit on this, when we say that God is like loving and powerful and, and uh, all-knowing, it's, it's not saying that He's way more loving than us and way more powerful and way more knowing. It's saying He is a different category of those things than we are. Uh, something uh, altogether different from what we are, even in those things. As we try to emulate Him, there's, there's something to Him that we will never be able to get our minds around. Uh, theologians often use a similar term to describe this. The term is ineffable. Um, and the word ineffable, I think I got the definition there. Yep. Um, too great or too extreme to be described in words. Greater extreme to be described in words, which would mean that this is officially the most foolish teaching assignment I've ever taken. Um, hang on for about 40 minutes while I explain to you in words about a God who cannot be explained in words, right? Um, probably, probably the uh, safest bet would be to stand up here and say, God is incomprehensible, let's pray. And, and wrap up, but of course, not, not going to do that. We're going to go for it here. Um, so, so I want to talk, first of all, what the Bible says about this, where we get this idea from Scripture, because that's what we want to be doing, not just coming up with ideas, but seeing what the Scripture says. So you had that first uh, passage that we just read together from Job 11, verses 7 through 9, uh, saying these things about God, that you cannot get your mind around Him. He is higher than heaven. What can you know? He is deeper than Sheol, that is the place of the dead. What can you do? Now, the ironic uh, part about those words right there is that they're coming from a man named Zophar, who is one of Job's friends. And what Zophar is doing is explaining all about God to Job. And he's telling Job, hey, let me tell you why you're suffering. Here's how God works. Um, and, and about uh, 30 chapters later, God will go off on Zophar and all his friends because Zophar didn't take his own advice. That is, that he, he can't pin God down and know exactly what God is doing and what God is about in these things. Um, another one is Psalm 145.3, which says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Is that word? I, it was only like the, third, was like the third or fourth time that I read that, that I realized how often great comes up just over and over again in that. But that idea is greatness is unsearchable. You can't... You can't search it out. You can't walk all the way through it. 
Another one, we'll use this verse in uh, another attribute later in this summer, but it is Romans 11, 33 and 34, one of my favorites. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? And of course, the implied answer is no one. No one knows the mind of the Lord. No one gets to counsel God and tell Him what to do. Inscrutable are His ways. That is, impossible to trace out. Impossible to be able to figure out. And then this one from 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul says that God alone has immortality and He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This is just a little bit of what the Bible says about God's incomprehensibility. But, but I think what's even maybe more fascinating is what the Bible can't say about God's uh, nature and His incomprehensibility. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Ezekiel 1 real quick. There are these handful of times in the, in the scriptures when one of the authors has an encounter with the glory of God and kind of has the curtain pulled back on this earth, has in some sense almost like a little bit of the curtain of the arch pulled back to get like a glimpse onto the other side of what God is like. And it's always fascinating to hear the kind of language that they try to use as they're grasping for words to try to describe what they see. Um, I want you, I'm going to read this out loud, I want you to pay attention, count how many times you see a word um, like likeness or appearance or like. How many times Ezekiel has to resort to that in this passage when he tries to describe the glory of God? Uh, Ezekiel 1 verses 26 through 28 says, And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. You get a sense there of the stretching that Ezekiel's trying to do to put to words what he's seen, um, and how uh, almost frustrated he has because there's nothing. All he can do is, well, it's kind of like this. Um, let, me, let me think of the closest thing maybe on earth. They kind of have the appearance of a human waist. And it's, it's kind of like the appearance of, the likeness of a liking appearance is what kind of what it was like. Do you, do you catch my drift? Um, and, and then John actually runs into the same problem when he encounters the glorified Jesus in uh, Revelation 1. John, of course, knows Jesus. He saw him... Um, in his unglorified state here on earth, and then he encounters him on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16. Listen, it's it's the same kind of language. Uh, He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, 
And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So he sees this glorious vision of what Jesus is, and, and, and words just seem to fail him. He's not saying that when Jesus opens his mouth, it sounds like Niagara Falls. He's not saying that it sounds like a rushing river. He's just saying that's the only, that's the closest thing I can get. The closest thing you'll be able to grasp when I write these words. The closest thing I can even grasp is that it was, it was sort of like this. There's this thing about the glory and the beauty of God that is truly ineffable. Um, is unable to be described by anything else. And, and this is kind of fascinating because what you see in those passages is actually the more comprehension a person is given, the more the door is opened to incomprehension. When Ezekiel actually gets to see what, what so few people have ever gotten to see, the glory of God, he comes away, it seems like, almost more confused. We have our own actual experiences of that. If you were to read, just on a surface level, the Old Testament, you could come away pretty quickly with, oh, there's only one God. He says that a lot. There's only one God. But then as you begin to read through more um, uh, with, with a greater level of focus, and as you get in the New Testament, you see actually he starts talking about um, three persons in one God, triune. It's, it's Father, Son, and Spirit. And all of them are distinct and different, and yet all of them are the same. And so now I've got a better understanding of God. I've got a better comprehension. He's not just one. He's triune. But the moment I say that, I have less comprehension than I had when I started with. It was easier when I just thought one God. Now I've got to try to get my mind around this idea of Trinity and what that is. This is what we face when we try to deal with God's uh, incomprehensibility. So faced with a God like this, the temptation is for us to do one of two things. The first is that we try to shrink God down. And this is probably the older and more natural temptation. For as long as human beings have been in existence and have had a grasp of the divine, the goal has been to try and shrink the divine down to something that I can get a handle on, to something that I can understand. This is what A.W. Tozer says in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God that we can in some measure control. That's why God says uh, that not only first you shall have no other gods before me, but second you shall not make an image of anything in heaven or on earth. And that includes him. That's, that's important to know. The prohibition against building idols is not just, I don't want you to worship false gods. Uh, the first major example we have of this is in Exodus 32, 
when Moses goes up on the mountain and the people go, we don't know where Moses went. We don't know what to do. So we, we need a God to worship. And, and so Aaron has them all throw their gold in and he builds a golden calf. And he doesn't say, behold, a new God. He says, behold, the God that brought you out of Egypt. And then he says, let's gather together because tomorrow we are going to hold a festival to Yahweh. Not, not Baal, not Molech. No, the, the God that he wants to worship, that he wants them all to worship is Yahweh, the God that brought them out of Egypt. And when God sees that he wants to hold a festival to Yahweh in worship of him, he is furious, furious. And when Moses comes down the mountain, he is furious because what they're doing is they're trying to make the infinite, incomprehensible God just like all the little small gods of everybody else around them. The gods back then were, by and large, tied to, like, regions. Like, you, you could know where you put them. They, they, they stuck around in regions. They, they were tied to a people. They were tied to a family, even. These kind of lesser gods. And, and, and the thing is, if I can, I can figure them out enough, then there's kind of a formula. I know that if I do this, if I offer this kind of sacrifice, then the gods will do this for me. Um, and, and so all I got to do is figure out how to kind of manage, how to control this. And God refuses to allow his people to ever get that concept of him, that he is small enough to grasp, that he is small enough to control or to, um, to be able to kind of manipulate through formulas or any of those things. Um, so idol worship was the way it played out back then a lot. That can still happen today, but... Um, today, actually, it can even take place in things like we're doing right now. Um, the truth is that there can be a danger even to theology as we try to measure and define what God is like. When we, when we put Him up in here in pictures and when we uh, draw up diagrams and when we put spreadsheets together and when we list all His attributes out and we go, this, this is what God is. Uh, there's, obviously, we believe that there's value to that. We're devoting a summer to it. But there's a danger to that as well when we, when we think that we're getting a grasp on Him, that we can measure Him. In fact, I would say this, that the study of theology can be one of the most spiritually unhealthy things you can do if it is not covered with humility. That a class like this could be one of the most detrimental things for you if you do not approach it in a spirit of awe, humility, and worship. I can speak of that. Um, Scott could stand up here and speak of that as... Um, people who went to Bible college and, and watched sometimes some of the smartest students, uh, some of the ones who had the best uh, grasp of the Bible, um, and, and got to watch them and their knowledge and their theology and all their biblical understanding lead them away from God. Because, because they did it in a spirit of pride that said, I'm going to figure all of this out. And I've got this down, and I, I know what God is. They've, they've got him pinned down. And, and the truth is, I, I think I could probably say I've, I've, I've done it myself. This ability to, to um, whittle God down to a manageable, definable um, size that I can explain to everybody and, and lay out in front of everybody. Uh, here's the truth. If you've got God all figured out, it is a sure, a sure sign that what you're actually dealing with is a small God of your own design. 
And when you have a small God of your own design, this is what I saw. I could name names to you right now. Uh, John Borman, Tom Stark, uh, of people I went to school with uh, whose worship of the true God of the Bible shrank. And their desire to obey that God um, came to nothing as they began to try and study and pin him down. Because they weren't studying the real God anymore. They were studying a God of their own choosing as they thought they had him all figured out. Familiarity, so goes the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. The more I know somebody, the easier it is sometimes to dismiss them. It's actually exactly what happens with Jesus when he preaches in his hometown. You remember? Is it, isn't this the carpenter's son? We, we know this guy. He can't, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the, the true son of God. No, I know, that's Mary's boy over there. And, and that's one of the beauties of God in his incomprehensibility is you will never know him enough to dismiss him. You will never know enough about him to go, oh yeah, I, I know what that's all about. Um, he's, he's too big for that. I love the way Jen Wilkin puts it. The only expert on God is God. But the second temptation is to go to the other side. The first is to shrink God down. The second is to shirk our responsibility. To shirk our responsibility to seek Him and know Him. Now there is... 738. um, There is a a category of theology known as apophatic theology. And and we won't get too into this. Uh, I consider talking about it for a while, but... Um, just, just touching on it, it's, it's mostly in the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and, and apophatic, so there's these two categories, cataphatic, which is a positive, describing God by what we know of Him, um, which is kind of what we're doing in this summer study, and then there's an apophatic theology, which, is, um, which basically says we can't know Him, we can't know all these things about Him, and so all we can really do is say what we, what we know is not true of God. All we can really do is talk about kind of the mystery of him and just kind of bask in that. Um, and, and there's something to that. Actually, you'll notice how many of our attributes of God are actually apophatic in nature, like this one. He's not comprehensible. He is ineffable. He is infinite. Uh, he is, so, so as we begin to explain him, often we're using apophatic language to try and explain God, even as we teach him. There's something to that, this recognition that he's bigger than I can get my mind around with words. But often what this leads to, I think, is just a shirking, for, for many of us at least in the West, is just shirking our responsibility in laziness and apathy. Um, that we say things like, you know, I can't ever truly figure God all out, so what's the point? Or, you know, my mind just doesn't work that way. I'm not like a book kind of person. I'm not like an academic kind of person. Or, you know, um, those guys, the Jim Johnsons, the Ryan Vincents, they're a whole lot better at moving the ocean than I am. And, you know, the truth is they've got a head start on it. They've got like an education. It's their job. So how about we just leave that job to them? They'll move the ocean. The rest of us can kind of go back and play in the little swimming pool that they're making for us. And I think a lot of people go to that. Here, I'm not saying that everybody has to have a Ph.D. in biblical studies or, or uh, in doctrine, has to have their master's in theology, anything like that. Um, 
But I do believe that it is the job of us to seek out who God is, to try to go after Him. And, and that often, um, our excuses, it's just, you know, that's just not me, are sometimes just a sign for laziness. Um, you know, Jim always likes to use the example, like, man, you, you certainly, you're certainly good at studying when it comes to fantasy football. You're certainly good at knowing um, who's the best person to take in the second round if this quarterback's already taken and what defenses to put, those kinds of things. You, you're certainly good at knowing that. Listen, man, I tried to pick up, like, Instagram this last summer just to be able to, like, post some stuff for the table. Dude, like, I think you have to have, this is science, this is how I know I'm old because this will sound ridiculous to all of you. I feel like I should have a master's degree to use social media now, okay? I still don't know how to Snapchat, all right? Um, but there are all these things that people, like, they're, they're, if you want to know it, you'll know it. If you want, if, if it matters enough to you, you pursue how to figure these things out. And this is something that I think is important when it comes to theology and God. We don't have this option. Uh, another way that this actually plays itself out is in relativism. Um, in our postmodern world, it is easy to take this kind of thinking. You know, I mean, we can never really know all that God is. He's so big. And that quickly turns into, you know, who are we to say that we've got the market on what God really is? Who are we to say as Christians that we know what God is like and that like the Muslims over here at the mosque, like that they don't know what God is like? Who are we to, I mean, he's too big for any one religion, right? He's too big for any of us to get our minds around. And, and so that quickly leads to this idea that, well, we can't really know anything, at least not fully. And certainly everybody's got some little grasp on the truth. The Bible does not give us that option either. Here's kind of the beautiful irony is that the God who is beyond knowing repeatedly calls us to know Him. That the God that you can't understand seeks or calls us to seek understanding of Him. Um, this is Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So he, God says, I, I want you to be able to, if, if you're going to boast on anything, boast that you understand me. And then he lists off these things. There are these things that you can know about me. Paul says this to the Athenians on Mars Hill when he's trying to describe uh, who God is and what he's like to them. He says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. That's from Acts 17, 26-27. And then Paul says this at the end of the book of, the Ro uh, book of Romans, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So notice, Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, the truth is, who can really know? I came and showed you some stuff about God, but, but God is bigger than any one man's knowledge. So if someone else comes in and teaches you some things, keep an open mind. There are other things that you could be hearing from them. No, 
Paul says repeatedly in his epistles, and you will see this um, in a number of them, especially when you get to the pastorals, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul says over and over again, if someone comes in and tries to teach you something different than we taught you about God, have nothing to do with them. Don't listen to them. Kick them out because there are specific things that we know for sure to be true about God. And we can hold to those things and we can um, believe those things and we can continue to explore those things. We do not deviate from them. So how do we hold the incomprehensible God in tension with the call to know and believe the right things about Him? And this is where I, I really think Jen Wilkins' kind of statement is helpful to me, where she says basically that there is a difference. We may not know God fully, but it does not mean that we can't know Him sufficiently. We can't know Him fully. We'll never know Him fully. This side of eternity or the next. But we can know Him sufficiently. He has seen to it. He has made a way that we have the ability to have a sufficient knowledge of who He is and what He's like and what He wants from us and how we can come to Him and how we can be saved from our sin. He has given us sufficient knowledge from that through creation around us, <clears throat> what we call general revelation, and through the Scriptures, what we call special revelation. <coughs> um, but, but most... Uh, most notably, he did it in this amazing and incredible way that was completely unforeseen to everybody. Go ahead in your Bibles to John 1. John 1. Verses 14 through 18 says this, And the Word, that is Jesus Christ, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John says that Jesus came, put flesh on, and he made the unknowable God known to us. Came to reveal that to us. The only way for us to get the truest, purest grasp of what a God above the arch looks like is for that God to step below the arch. Because we'll never be able to break past it ourselves. We'll never be able to see that clearly, and so God does it comes down and lives here, but notice there's this really remarkable thing on Jesus' last night before his crucifixion when he's sitting with the apostles, uh, yeah, the, the twelve, and he's describing to them what's going on. He has that famous verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14. And then right on the heels of that, Philip says to him, Lord, just if you would, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says to him, Philip, 
Have you been around me so long and yet you do not know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, then you've seen the incomprehensible, unknowable God. If you've seen me, then you've seen the one above the arch. Then you've, you, you, you're getting a glimpse of what Ezekiel tried to put into words. Getting a glimpse of what John will later try to put into words. In, in small bits, of course. He's, he's 100% God and he's 100% human. So we're seeing him through that human lens. But we're getting a picture. This is, this is why the Bible will say in Colossians 1 that the Son is the image of the invisible God. This is why the writer of Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 1 uh, that in the past God spoke to us through the prophets and through the scriptures, but now He has spoke through us, to us through His Son and that the Son is the radiance of the God's glory and the exact repre- representation of His being. That that is the clearest picture of God that you will ever get this side of eternity is to look at Jesus. Um which is kind of a, leads to this really cool idea that God came to show us these things. Um, if God is ineffable, if God is truly incomprehensible, that the human mind cannot figure Him out or, or know Him on our own, that means then that every bit of knowledge that you have about Him was there because He willingly made it available to you. It means that everything in this word here, everything that Jesus shows you, everything that you have the opportunity to learn, God wants you to learn, has um, been excited for you to know about, like a, kind of like a, uh, like a parent hiding Easter eggs for their kids. Um, like, yes, kind of making you like look for it, but excited for you to know it, wants you to know it. Everything that you know about God is a gift from Him. And there's something really amazing about that. What if, what if God really is like an ocean, but if doing theology is not like trying to move that ocean from one spot to the other, maybe that's not the job of theology. What if the job of theology is to simply explore that ocean? And in that sense, if, if it's endless, then it's not, a, it's not a task that exasperates me. It's, it's an adventure that I get to explore for the rest of my life. I can swim as deep as I want in it and never run out. I can sail as far out as I want to and never come to the end of it. And there's something that ought to be incredible about that, even on into eternity. I remember the first time I heard Jim Johnson talk about this idea that um, when you get to heaven... There's this kind of common belief that like, once we get to heaven, we'll know everything. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that. We don't become omniscient like God, which means you will be in heaven for a thousand years and you'll still be able to go up to God and go, have I figured it all out yet? And God's going to say, you're not even scratching the surface. Like There's still more to know. There's still so much. When you'll be able to say that with a smile because that'll be some of the coolest thing you'll get to hear. You know that feeling whenever you learn something kind of mind-blowing about God that you did not know before? That kind of cool, like weird little, almost like rush and almost just kind of like, man, that is so awesome. Eternity will be a series of a billion of those. Every day discovering new things that we did not know and every day getting to feel that, that little sense of 
awe and that little sense of uh, mind blown, that, that sense of hopefully worship that comes from learning something new and big about God. And if He's infinitely good, it means you'll only ever discover more and more amazing things, more and more good and incredible things. That is a beautiful eternity. Um, and I love this because um, that's actually the way that Jesus describes eternal life. In John 17, 3, in his prayer, his high priestly prayers, he's praying for his people. He says these words, And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing the unknowable God. Um, That's how Jesus defines it. And Jesus, whom he has sent, which we do that through Christ. We do that through the Holy Spirit, all of those things. And we have an eternity to get to do that more. Um, Let's pray. Father, I do recognize, but not... Not fully, I'm sure. Uh, the audacity of trying to explain an incomprehensible, ineffable God. And, uh, and I do know that uh, I can't even describe your incomprehensibility properly. That there's just so much more to it. But I pray that the knowledge that you gave us tonight was sufficient and uh, that it would be enough to to let us know you a little bit more and um, let us hunger after you more. Father, I would ask this this gift, this grace for us tonight, that you would put in us a hunger for more knowledge of you, that uh, that we would love it, that we would love chasing after you, that we would love learning new things about you, that we would... um, that we would be able to do that with a humility that causes us just to want to worship you more. Um, I ask you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.